Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Costas, today we are talking with Kyle from OneHouse. Now, we've actually heard about OneHouse before, although we didn't know the name. We had Vinoth, one of the creators of Apache Hootie on the show, one of our best performing episodes ever. And he told us, I think before the show, and he may have mentioned on the show that he was working on something based on Hootie, but they were in stealth mode and now they are not in stealth mode anymore. The company's called One House. And like I said, it's built on Foodie. And we are talking with Kyle from One House. He's their head of product. And he has a really interesting background. Spent a ton of time at Microsoft and is now building One House along with Vinoth. You know, I'm really interested. This isn't going to surprise you at all. I do have a lot of questions about, about One House, but I kind of want to hear about his experience at Microsoft because he did a lot of things. He worked on you know, the office suite, he worked on Bing, he worked on sort of the Siri, Siri-esque, I can't remember exactly what, Cortada, I think it is, for Microsoft. And then as your Databricks. And so I want to hear about his experience at Microsoft. We don't talk a ton about Microsoft on the show, but they're a huge, huge company with tons of data products. So that's what I'm going to ask about. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I have plenty of questions to ask about Lake houses and uh, the work that they are doing at one house. But one of the questions that I definitely want to ask you is like how it feels to go from such a big company like Microsoft in the mm. stage startup. <laughs> Dude, it's a seed stage startup. Yeah. So I'm I'm very curious to see like how how it feels and how it's going. So that's All right. right. Let's, let's do it. Kyle, welcome to the Data Stack Show. We're so excited to have you. Thanks, Eric. Excited to be here. All right. Well, let's start where we always do. Give us your background and then tell us what you do today at OneHouse. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, I've been in the data space about nine years. And I started that journey at Microsoft, actually. And in that time, I built data platforms, data engineering platforms for large-scale services like Office. I joined actually Microsoft in some interesting times when they first released Windows 8. Oh, wow. Is, yeah, but at, we were also developing the new O365 apps, mobile apps. And there I was tasked for building a new telemetry system for all of these Office applications. So it was a really fun time. Back in 2013, we had an internal tool built on Hadoop and um, we actually had some kind of transactional data lake components in there, a project called Project Baja, if anyone's interested to search these things back mm. back then in, in 2013, it was pretty advanced stuff. But yeah, I faced some, some interesting data engineering challenges, building data platforms for Office, then went over and did this for Bing, Microsoft Search Engine. And that was, at, of course, a much larger scale, more mature kind of data platform. And from there, I wanted to consciously drive my career more into like more, more product building. And so that first step from there was going over to Cortana. This is Microsoft's digital assistant like Siri. And there I was driving product 
growth strategy and and measurement strategy. So a lot of data science work and defining from a business perspective what does success mean for the product and tra- tracing that back down into how we measure the product and, and track its growth. And then I switched over to building like true data products themselves. I, I went over to the Azure machine learning world and worked on some interesting components like Python and R execution inside SQL Server. So we had these unique ways that we could do remote compute execution. The goal was for the, think of the persona of data scientists who like to be in Jupyter notebooks and writing all their machine learning development inside Jupyter notebooks. But if they had data inside SQL Server, usually they'd take like a dump, a CSV dump or something and pull it in, sample the data and, and run with it that way. We made ways where people can stay in the IDE of their choice and then send remote compute execution, the, the code that they write in Python or R into SQL Server. So it would process the data there in SQL Server, return results back to their notebooks and things like that. that was super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. That was near like 2017. Then shortly after that, I remember being, I distinctly remember this experience. I was at the Microsoft Build Conference, which was in, in 2018. And I was at the booth. It was a shared booth for like Azure machine learning, Azure data kind of components. And Microsoft first announced the preview for Azure Databricks. If folks don't know, Microsoft and Databricks have a a special relationship where we would take Databricks's native product and build it into a deeper integrations. It's the Azure backbone stack. And then we'd actually market and sell this as a Microsoft first-party service. We call it Microsoft Azure Databricks. And of course, behind the scenes, it's Microsoft and, and Databricks building this together. And uh, I was I was still on the Azure Machine Learning team, but we announced that preview for Azure Databricks and the booth was flooded, completely flooded with people that wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I get really funny questions like, like, what is, what is a Databrick? And, and just like <laughs> really funny questions people would, would come ask at the booth. I'm like, like where where's the the team that we had like one person that helped like bootstrap this partnership and integration these kind of things but then shortly we were going we were preparing to to have like the ga release of the azure databricks product and needed to staff up a bigger team and so i jumped onto that team and was there from when we first launched azure databricks ga uh, service at microsoft and uh, that was a really fun ride was was a product manager there, product lead, and I got to see firsthand the the growth of this service from making zero dollars to become like the fastest growing analytics service on Azure. We had some really fun things that that we went through with scale scale challenges and outreach challenges and and all kinds of things that it was fun to build on a fast paced fast growing product. Then, yes, yeah, so I was on the front lines of. This emergence of the the Lakehouse category that, that Databricks calls it here, the Lakehouse, and help you know hundreds of, of different organizations, enterprises modernize their data stacks, their data architecture onto the the, the Lakehouse architecture. And I was deep deep in that domain, and then I bumped into Vinod Chandar, who I know has been on your show in in the past. Yeah, and he's the creator of Apache Hootie. So if if folks on the show know that Databricks has this open source project called Delta Lake, very successful, amazing, amazing product service. And it's pretty comparable to what Apache Hootie is as well. 
And so, of course, I'd heard about Udi, and so I was interested to talk to Vinod. I, I learned about what his vision was for what he wanted to do and build a company around Apache Hootie as well. And I decided to jump ship, and that's that's where I'm at here at, at One House today. So I'm head of product at One House. We just emerged out of stealth about three months ago, and we're building fast and furious. Awesome. Okay, Kyle, so many questions, especially around Azure Databricks, but I actually want to go back because you mentioned something about some of the work you did in the context of Office at Microsoft. And what I think is interesting about that is the time when you were there. You know, Office is a is a super interesting, you know, one of the most arguably influential, you know, software space in the entire world, excels the most used business application in the world. But correct me if I'm wrong, but during the time when you were there, there was this big push to get a lot of the sort of, you know, sort of local, locally run software connected to the larger Microsoft ecosystem online, including, you know, sort of the Microsoft accounts. And you mentioned the word telemetry. And so I, I can only imagine that there were some really unique challenges sort of crossing the chasm of locally run software connecting these online accounts. What were some of the unique things that you experienced trying to build data engineering products and workflows around that? Yeah, awesome. That's a really good question. I'm glad you picked up on that as well. It was an interesting time. Looking back on it, I was new in my career and didn't have a lot of perspective on like history and, and data and the evolution, these kind of things. But I was, in the, I was in the thick of it right then. Like you said, the family of Office products before that were all like local installed, like there was no telemetry basically at all. I think there was, if I remember right, I think there was like a pop-up that would say when it crashed, do you want to send this diagnostic log to Microsoft <laughs> or something like that? Yeah. Uh, but there is basically like no, no telemetry on these things. And so with the move to more that like O365 was that, that move to subscription-based services. Yep. So by default, you have like an online subscription. And, and so there's things that authenticate and connect it to the, to the internet and things like that. And we also developed the, the web apps at this time. We developed oh, wow. the, mo- the mobile apps at that time. And this is like 2013, 2014, all these cool products were coming out. And so there we were designing a new telemetry system from the ground up. Everything from like even the instrumentation SDKs. So identifying, you know, of course, Office products, if you look at them, they have a common like shared ribbon on top. And so we, we d- developed these SDKs that would have a lot of like shared instrumentation and, and telemetry mm-hmm. inside there. And then we had to devise all of the engineering platforms for like ingesting that data, bringing it into the system, dealing with a lot of late arriving data. Like you say, devices aren't always online. Laptops are, are frequently offline, sure. these mobile apps, these things. Um, so there were some interesting data challenges with with late arriving data, Lambda architectures. We're building on Hadoop uh, systems back then. We had an internal tool at Microsoft called Cosmos. And being the in, in the most Microsoft way, we had this special language that you could write. It's called scope. You can look these things up online. And the scope language is a mix between SQL and, and C sharp. You could embed so like C sharp inside your SQL. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so then we developed these these pipelines to process the data and then expose it back out through APIs to all the internal engineering teams that were like working on the products too, so that we could like measure the health of the products, like availability, reliability, these kind of things. 
but then also like business kind of metrics. And we had like clickstream usage analysis and error trace, built some systems that we struggled to get some of the near real time. At least when I was there in, in 2013 ish, we, we struggled to have some of the near real time, but it was certain, certainly a, a, a fun time of, of change and, and, and revolution. I felt like I was also on a team where it, we didn't have a lot of captains that were like doing this for a second time or third time, it felt like we were all doing this for the first time. And so it was really exciting ways that we had to think out of the box. And of course we leaned on some other teams. Like I mentioned, I went over to the Bing team, the Microsoft search engine Bing after that. So of course, like I would meet with them frequently and interview, Hey, how did you design these things, these tables with thousands of columns and like, you know, exabytes and petabytes of, of data inside these processing systems for, for Bing. And so we learned a lot of things from, from that, that we carried over to this new telemetry platform for office. Super interesting. Thank you for indulging me. Just love hearing some of that, the historical sort of insider stories around some of the things that we're all familiar with. Okay. Let's fast forward to Azure Databricks. So in a very short time, it went from, you know, sort of a product announcement to being the fastest growing analytics product on Azure. So. Help us understand why did that happen, right? What, you know, it sounds like there were a lot of users who just sort of said, oh, yes, like this, yeah. this solves such a painful issue for me. What were, what was that sort of problem set? That's awesome. Yeah, I think it breaks down into a few different categories. I think first off, we should give like, all the credit and kudos to our Databricks partners who built the service and they had it already available on AWS. And so they were bringing existing product that's like proven product market fit, everything like that. And of course it was the like best spark experience out on the market there that people enjoyed on, on AWS already. And we brought it to, to Azure for the first. So that that's one factor that like, Hey, there's, it's a product that had legs that people kind of knew about as well, that, that we came and, and launched on the Azure platform. And, you know, then we married up our Microsoft Azure, like global sales fleet and field thing that, that, you know, we have a foot in the door of every enterprise customer out there. And so combining and marrying like an amazing product that that's there and, and a global sales fleet trained to, to get that in the door with customers, we had like this really great uh, partnership of development. But then when you think of like your question on like, why was it so successful? What made it take off? These kind of things. Some of this, I would, I actually did, I did a conference in Florida, somewhere halfway between this journey. And I asked this question to the audience and that was there. I said, like, why, like, why do you like Azure Databricks? Shout out from the crowd. What, what, what do you like? And people, I think there were like three simple answers that came out as fast. It's easy to use and it's secure. And I think that ease of use was, was really important. Looking at other comparable Microsoft products that we had, we had some other services that, that did offer Spark, open source Apache Spark, but they, they were not that easy to use and, and a little bit cumbersome. So Databricks brought the easiest Spark experience to, to the market and it was just a pleasure, pleasure to use the product that the data, the collaborative notebooks and everything else you can do for data science and, and whatnot. And 
that that was a big factor. I think another dimension that made this successful is people saw this as, you know, every other product that we offer from Microsoft is like in the in the Azure cloud only. And this is actually a unique product that is available on multiple clouds. And so mm. people would feel that they are future-proofing their data environments and data stacks by, hey, if I ever needed to leave Azure and go to AWS, hey, I'm using Databricks here, I'll use Databricks over there. And and so they they felt comfortable picking a product that was available on multiple clouds. I think that was an advantage that we had as well. So yeah, is that, does that answer the yeah, question? Yeah, super helpful. Okay, I have one more, and then I know that Costas has a bunch of interesting questions, especially around the lake house, but Tell us about, tell us about One House. Yeah. You know, so I know that, of course, Vinath, who was such a wonderful guest to have on the show, and Hootie, but tell us, tell us about One House. You came out of Cell three months ago, so this is, I feel privileged that we get to talk to you after coming out of Stealth such a short time ago. Yeah, yeah, this is really exciting. Um, and of course, a topic that's dear to the heart as I'm head of product here and in the weeds building this thing right now, actively from from the ground up. So one house I would summarize, like if you wanted a one line answer, I would say we are a pre-built lake house foundation for analytics and AI. And if I break that down a little bit further, like we'll get into, it sounds like the, the topics of what a lake house is and why it's important, why it matters, those kind of things. But what I observed in my time with Azure Databricks and otherwise working with with a variety, large diversity of different customers out in the market is that it's hard to build a data platform on data lakes. Even with amazing products like Databricks, even with amazing technologies like Delta Lake, Apache Hootie, these different things, it still is, is time intensive to build these lakes. And uh, I would frequently observe customers take six months or longer with large engineering teams to operationalize and truly have like a production grade data platform, right? I built this with Office and, and other things, even in, in firsthand experience. And so what we plan to do with OneHouse is we offer this fully managed experience to have a pre-built foundation of your data lake and, and lake house. And, and so we are, uh, you mentioned Vinod, Vinod's the founder CEO of OneHouse, and he is the creator, the original creator of Apache Hootie that he created in 2016 at, at Uber. And so... Apache Hootie kind of pioneered this new transactional data lake category that now we call the the lake house. And here now we're we're at one house, we're offering automation on top of the open source components that Apache Apache Hootie has has to offer. And so if you look, if you read up on Apache Hootie or go to the docs and see what those what those different services are, we have things like ingestion services. And so with one house, we'll offer managed ingestion, point to where your data is at, we'll bring it in, mm. stream it in real time in efficient ways. Then there's a lot of like table services. Like when you, when you think of what a lake house is, and I think we'll dive in that category soon. It's like, there's a lot of things you want to, to a, a lot of services you want to operate on this data, like clustering, compaction, indexing, cleaning up historical metadata, these kind of things. And we'll automate the the use of all these all these services then yeah from one house there we we're not building a query engine so like one of one of the other goals that we have is to try to decouple data infrastructure from query engines the the worldview that i see out there today is most people build a query engine there's a lot of dollars that, that you can chase after for etl and 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 query dollars 
but then they build a vertical optimized stack down to the lake or the warehouse, wherever the data resides. They build a vertical optimized stack that like, hey, it's going to be the best for this query engine. Let's crank the wheel and, and make more revenue through our query engine, et cetera. And so what we want to do is make it so that people can very easily stand up a data lake or a lake house platform and have interoperability across the, uh, to be able to use the query engine of their choice. I've seen people, people do want to have mixed mode compute and use things like Trino, use things like Presto, use things like Spark, Hive, you name it. And we want to be able to provide that flexibility to future-proof your data as well. Love it. All right, Costas, I've been monopolizing and I heard a couple of words in there that I know are very near and dear to you and what you work on every day. So please jump in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll start with a bit of a more personal question, though, before we sure. go to the Lake House story. So, Kyle, from working in one of like the biggest enterprises in the world, which is Microsoft, yeah, you moved to a city. Oh, yeah. That was a good question. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. How does it feel? Oh, wow. It's a big change. It's a big change. So yeah, in my, in my career journey, there's like a side note where like I was volunteering, helping some people do some like startup things, start up their own businesses so with this program called Defy, we can talk about it later, but I was inspired by the, the startup ecosystem and culture. And then also being exposed to Azure Databricks, like we started partnering up, partnering up with Databricks. They were series D about a few hundred employees. And I was there for that whole like rapid growth journey. And so then when I started to look at what like next opportunity I wanted to do in my career, I looked around, of course, first inside Microsoft, I'm happy, you know, things are good here. And but I felt like I'd be bored with any other choice that was there, like after experiencing such fast pace. And so I started to look at more, more startup scale. I didn't think I would go this small, honestly. I thought I'd land somewhere in the CD kind of, you know, that kind of range somewhere in the middle. But when I met Vinoth and this was, you know, I was deep in this lake house domain already and Delta Lake and everything else. And then I met him and he's a creator of Hootie. And so the parallels there. And, and when we started to talk, it was just light bulb moments that were going, light bulb experiences that were going off in my head of Mike, this is, these are incredible market opportunities that I already know. And I feel like this, this strategy to build this company ways like once in a lifetime. I was like, let's, let's do it. Let's go build. So I, I haven't been a part of some, a startup this small and learning, learning as we go, but it's, it's a lot of fun. That's nice. Nice to hear. And so can you say like an experience that really surprised you? Like a, something that's like obviously different, but you also didn't expect. Mm. Yeah. Good question. I think. Like uh, most of these I expected when I got here, right? The, the uh, complete lack of structure, the complete lack of like guidance and direction. Like it's all on you. It's all on your shoulders. I think maybe to answer that question and, and link these together, one thing that excites me and, and, and energizes me about this experience is like feeling that ownership, feeling that accountability and feeling that like, Hey, there's, there's no one else here that will get it done unless I get it done. Right. There's, if, if I fail, it's on me. Right. And so feeling that accountability really amps up the energy and, and gets me excited to come to work, gets me excited to lean in and, and try to build for, for the future. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's awesome. I mean, to be honest, like I, I, I admire people that like they are able to go through such a radical change and still be excited because it is a radical change. Like, it, it, is, like, it is radical change. Yeah, completely different way of like how things are operating and what kind of mindset you need to have. So yes, yeah, that's that's amazing. Cool. So okay, let's uh, one question about Microsoft also. So it's kind of interesting, like the story around like Microsoft and the like data infrastructure in general, because Microsoft like has like. Traditionally, a lot of innovation in this space, right? Like just if we concentrate only on MSQL on its own, like it's, it's like a lot and lot of like innovation in like database systems and working with data. But from someone who, let's say, spent most of her time, like in the modern data stack, right? We don't hear about Azure that much. We don't hear about like Microsoft that much. We know that it exists probably like something really big, but it's like also distant. Why yeah. this is happening? Like why, yeah. let's say distance between in one side, we have like Snowflake, we have Google, we have AWS, and then we also have like Microsoft. Like why, why is this happening? Yeah, I would maybe, I, I probably don't have the perfect answer, but I'll take, I'll, I'll give you my take on it. I think there might be two components. One is Microsoft is hyper-focused on like their environment, their lane, like let's get it done for Azure and, and Azure customers. And we don't have many like cross-cloud plays, like Google, Google does great like cross-cloud cloud plays with BigQuery and yeah. um, a bunch of other services this way. AWS, of course, is the, the market leader and has the the most market share in terms of like cloud compute and and things like this and so i think some of it is because of that that stay in your lane marketing that that microsoft focuses on the other half may be because the modern data stack is also pretty new and it's evolving and and, and you know building a startup myself now i see that like the first place i'm going to build is is aws where where the largest market share is and of course, Azure is still, I would say, my my favorite cloud, uh, and so I want I want to take my product to Azure as well. I just need the right customer demand mix to to take it there. And so maybe that's also where we see some bias in the modern data stack. Is like, hey, it's starting out, and some of these are are new products. Some of them are mature products, but you'll see the new ones will probably gravitate towards where they think they will find the most customers. And then they can expand and 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 grow from there. Because I think if you look at the the modern data stack, most of these companies are outside of like the the cloud native vendors, and so they'll want to build multi cloud products. It makes sense for for anyone outside of a cloud vendor to be available in all clouds. Um, but AWS is like an easy choice to start from first. Absolutely. Do you think that also has to do with like let's say what's markets like each one of the like the cloud vendors probably is focusing a little bit more has more success because i don't know like in my mind at least azure and microsoft is always like an enterprise so right like sure uh, that's like what they know really well how to do how to build there and like all these things while on the complete opposite side of the spectrum you have google which is 
more of like the medium size, like small size, like customer. And then somewhere yeah. in between you have a WUS, right? Do you think yeah, that yeah. also like? A- I think it. I, yeah, I think it does influence because you, you, if you look at this from a perspective of like owning these services or owning these products, you want to hyper focus your efforts on where you have the most success, where you can drive the most revenue. And if you have these largest enterprises come to Microsoft for these big contracts, you know, sometimes people combine and they want a single vendor for like Office. We were talking about Office, right? And have O365 and Azure and, and combined spend, these kind of things, combined relationship. Then, yeah, then if, if I own these products, I would, I would focus the, the success on, on where I know I can turn the crank and, and drive more revenue and dollars that way. So I think yeah. it might have a component too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I think. And it's probably like also one of the reasons that, I mean, Databricks together with Microsoft and Azure made so sense and it was like so successful. Yeah. Because you take like a platform that it's, let's say, built for the enterprise and you have a product that is also, let's say, addresses the needs of the enterprise has today. So you put them together and you have success, obviously. Like, of course, yes. the go-to-market is going to follow and like it's going like to work very well, but I think it's like the the perfect context to go and build an integration product there with the two together. So my assumption at least would be that like that was also like an important factor to the success yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. of this collaboration. Okay, cool. So let's talk about lake houses now. As you said, it's a new category. The, the common, I think, understanding is that the lake house is a paradigm that emerges through the need to work with data lakes. And the issues that we have with building and operating data lakes. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what are these challenges? Why the data lake is not enough? Why do we need something on top of that? Or I don't know, like a completely different paradigm there. That's awesome. Yeah. Good question. And I would start it with helping point people to some resources too. So they know it's not just my opinion. If you go search like Gartner's latest data management hype cycle, what you'll see on there is data lakes are in the pit of what Gartner calls the the trough of disillusionment. And uh, same with, uh, I think like, I think I have the chart handy here. Even data engineering side by side with data lakes, it's in the, in the trough of disillusionment. And the, the pieces that are on the rise are data ops, lake house, metadata management, a bunch of different components that if you look, if you look at these trends together, it starts to call out and make obvious what, what the problems are. If you're not in the space, if you're not living and breathing and and felt the experiences already, you can learn from this, this perspective, because one, I mentioned that like data lakes are, are hard to build, but also when compared to alternatives, they lack many qualities and, and features, right? Like a data lake is just a collection of files out on cloud storage, whether that's S3 or ADLS, GCS. And these files represent data. And then you have to build metadata systems around how to understand what data is in what files and, and, and track these. And then you have to manage the, the size of the files and, and how the files are organized and not to mention access control around the files, all these different components that make lakes so painful and, and 
hard to use. Whereas if you look at an alternative, like a, a data warehouse, you can pick up a data warehouse off the shelf, purchase like a data warehouse and use it. It's ready to go, right? You put data in and it's all like their schemas managed. These are tables. You can write your SQL. It's even if, if you're using a service like uh, Snowflake or, or otherwise it's like no knobs, performance tuning, these kind of things. And it just works, right? And the data lake you have to go build and but the the lakes also miss like if you if you study in data warehouses the lakes are missing a, a thing called acid transactions where you can't process updates or merges or these kind of things on lakes because the the file systems are are immutable file storage so you don't have acid transactions you don't have like managed schemas metadata the, these different components that are different. Now, if you look, if you flip the tables and, and look at what are the advantages of the lake versus a warehouse, because what I just described, maybe you'd be inclined to pick a warehouse over, over a lake. But on the flip side, there's a lot of advantages the other direction where the lake is a lot cheaper. The, the economics, especially when you start to scale on those economics, it's a lot cheaper to use a lake. You also can use a variety of like the structured and unstructured data. When it comes to machine learning, data science, a lot of this is is unstructured data. The warehouse also kind of locks you up to a single vendor, right? Like like you you put your data in that warehouse, and then it's all run on the compute of that vendor, etc. Whereas on a lake, you are open to play in more of the open source ecosystem and have a variety of tools. You're kind of more agile and 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 future proof in in that way. So. To backing this back up to Lakehouse, right? What a Lakehouse is, is you, you can take a, there's these open source projects, Apache Hootie, which is of course close to our heart at One House and Delta Lake, which was close to my heart at, at Databricks, where they take the best capabilities of a warehouse and bring them to the lake. And that's that's why we call these uh, Lakehouse environments. So does that help answer some of those, like why the, the Lakehouse? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It kind of feels a little bit like trying to build, let's say, a database system from starting from the file system and going up, yeah. right? Yeah. Which kind of is actually just like in the, uh, I mean, these are database systems are like more of a monolith. So there are like very complex architectures behind, but everything is like hidden behind the configuration and the SQL dialect that they are using. Yeah. But right now we are like, Pretty much when you build like a lake house or yeah, the lake house, you have to know about like query engines, about like parquet yeah. files and ORC yeah. files and then table formats on top of that. And it sounds like a lot of work, right? And I understand that like operating a system like this is going to be like pretty hard. And that's why like I'm going to, in a way, like ask the question again, but like from a different angle. What's so great and so important about the data lake that puts people into like all these efforts to do that. Like uh, okay. why people, let's say, don't just get snowflake and call it a day at the end, yeah. right? Yeah. What is it that we cannot do with like the data warehouse? Sure, sure. I think this I can answer with a perspective on what I've seen from customer journeys and and then maybe some specific examples too. So what I've seen in the market today, there's there's a common pattern where because it's easier to start with, and if you think of like also a, a company's 
life cycle or their data engineering team's life cycle. When you only have a few engineers or you're just getting started, or maybe your data's not huge in size, hey, I'll just pick up a, a warehouse. Maybe I pick up a combo, like a five trans snowflake kind of thing. And and I start, start building on this warehouse. But where I've seen uh, countless challenges is, is once people hit growth phases in their data engineering platforms, or they hire more like data scientists and the data scientists are like, hey, I need to train these models. And now I need you to go instrument these, like we're talking about office apps with more events and like machine generated data and, and things like that. And the, the size of data increases like by incredible scale, but also the complexity of the workloads that you want to run on your warehouse. And this is where I see a lot of tumultuous kind of migrations start to happen where, where when people scale in their warehouses, they, they get this cost fatigue. And I see it's even examples, you know, I've been talking to a lot of uh, big customers and seeing the amount of dollars they spend just on like ingesting data into these, these warehouses. And then subsequently, even like ETLs and these other things, it's, it's huge dollars. And, and what I think, you know, people realize is that on a lake, you are able to break apart different parts of your, of your workloads. Like if, if, if you just try to try to dissect, what are the, the workload types on, on the lake, right? You have, you have query up, up on the top, you have, um, ETL, you have like data management. This might include like reprocessing or backfilling GDPR deletions. You have like performance tuning kind of things like cleanup of, of data and you have ingestion, right? And you break apart these different types of workloads, like not all of them have the best ROI characteristics on one compute platform. And so like, like I mentioned these, these different characters, like, like query, query dollars, depending on, on the type and the concurrency and, and the uh, requirements of latency, perhaps warehouses are still the best pick, but for like exploratory analytics, you might be better off with like a Trino for like ETL kind of processes better off with a, a spark. And so not just better off in terms of like, hey, it's going to be more successful, but like actual big cost savings that you're able to drive uh, across your platform. So the warehouse, you're locked on one, one compute framework, the others, now you can, can segment these across the, the board. And this is why I see people have big problems once they get to those scale curves mm -hmm. with their data platforms. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's like, that's really interesting. This whole conversation around like the workloads. So, okay, you mentioned something about scale. Uh, you use like this word like a couple of times, and especially like when you're talking about the moment that like customers start realizing that they got like it becomes like really hard to like to scale with using just like within our warehouse. So, is the lake house something that's it's only relevant to? enterprises or like to big companies, like who cares about at the end for like house or who should sure. care about it? Sure. Yeah. I think that is kind of where one house comes into play as well. Cause right now, if you look at it, it's still kind of hard to build a lake house and you need the right ROI characteristics to enter a stage where you decide, Hey, I'm going to pour a couple engineers on this project. It's going to take us X amount of time. So the economics work out that, yeah, let's build a lake house. Right. And what we're trying to do with one house is flip that model completely 
and make it just as easy to build a lake house as like a five train snowflake combo. Click, click, click the button. You're in, your data's moved in. It's all formatted up. It's synced to the catalogs of your choosing. Now you could just have a, a data analyst come into the picture and start querying this data, using this data. You could bring a data scientist to the table. We let them use the compute context that they like. And so let me see if I can regroup back to, to your core question. I see like the, the actual architectural pattern of the lake house is important and viable, I think, to companies of, of all sizes. This ability to have a single pane of glass or a single centralized uh, place that you can manage your data and you can govern access controls around this data and you can share this data within your organization. Rather than, you know, the alternative, I see people kind of build out these silos or like, okay, we've got a data warehouse for, for these type of things. And then we've got this kind of database for other things. And we've got, you know, it's, it's, it's all kind of mixed. So I see that to answer your question, I think the lake house is of value to, to companies of, of any size. It's just on like, it's, it's a tough sell to try to build one. Sometimes if you're looking at it from like, you're getting started from scratch and, and you look at what the alternatives are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. makes sense. Do you see like a future where like a lake house will be living like side by side with the other house and. How do you think that like these two paradigms are going to coexist like in the company? Yeah. Yeah. I think they already do coexist today. And I've seen a lot of successful cases of coexistence as well. I think what might be interesting is to hear this from an angle of like the emergence of Lake House 2. So because when I was working on Azure Databricks, I saw these patterns start to emerge with customers where before we had the term lake house and, but we had Delta Lake, we had the Databricks service. Customers were looking for ways to eliminate warehouses out of the picture. They had a, a mixed mode of, of lakes and warehouses and that they would use warehouses for BI analytics and this or for machine learning and, and ETLs and everything else from the lakes. But uh, I saw time and time again, customers trying to eliminate the warehouse and bring these in. But sometimes they were struggling, like the, when you look at BI workloads and the type of concurrency that happens from users that are in like Tableau or Power BI dashboards, you click one button that may end up triggering like 20 queries that go and execute to, to your query engine. And you look at Spark, right? Azure Databricks with, with Spark, that that's coming to one single driver node. And if you study Apache Spark, like the, the fair scheduling within Spark, these things are not good for, for managing concurrency scale. And so I, I saw a lot of customers actually try to build lake houses before we like had this lake house thing. And so the, the demand signals were very obvious to us. And, and we knew that customers wanted to do this. They, they were feeling the cost fatigue. They wanted to approach these scenarios. And so that's where, you know, with, with Databricks, we solve these challenges by offering SQL endpoints that now can load balance between different Spark clusters and, and also the move to serverless, right? You see, you see Databricks making that move right now uh, as well. And so these, these type of things were at the same time. And when we came out and said, Hey, this is like officially the lake house, right? Like now BI queries can be distributed, be scalable and actually work on the lake in a comparable way to, to warehouses. 
And that's where, where it was big to, to double down on that. Mm -hmm. Cool. So one last question from me, and then I'll like hand the microphone to back to, to Eric. So you mentioned Delta, you mentioned Hobie, obviously, and it's, we also know that there's like iceberg out there. So there are like three table formats. There is something common in all three of them. And that's like the production of adding like asset guarantees there for transactions, which is, let's say like the, the, the minimum requirements for creating a table format, but what's different, like what's each one like brings on the table right now that the other one does not. Sure. Can you help us like understand a little bit better, like why we have three of them out there? Yeah, sure. I think they were both, they were all born in, in different ecosystems at, at different times. Hootie was invented in 2016, came out of Uber from, from Phenol, the CEO of our company. Delta Lake came to market in, I think, 2019. And Iceberg, I can't remember, is it 2019 as well? The same year as Delta Lake? Maybe. And Iceberg, Iceberg came out of Netflix and, and these kind of things. And I think at the get-go, if you study Hootie and Iceberg, they were built to solve slightly different challenges, but ended up building like really overlapping, solving general solutions the same. Same with, with Delta Lake. Now, if you want to look at ways that they're different or differentiators or, or things like that. I can talk from Apache Hootie's perspective first. And because this was, this is something that I grilled Vinoth on as well. When I first met him, where I was sitting at in a really great spot and, and Azure data bricks growing so fast. And I met Vinoth and I kind of grilled him like, what, like, what are you going to do with this Hootie project? Like, how is it going to make it with, with this gorilla in the room with Delta Lake? And then I started to actually learn about these technical edges that, that Hootie had, and you can go out and, and study some of the, the, the use cases or, or people that are talking publicly about how they're using Hootie and why they chose Hootie and these kind of things. A lot of them, there's a common pattern that emerges around like CDC kind of workloads where you need to ingest CDC data into your, into your data. Like some of those are because of there, there's two write formats that we have with, with Apache Hootie. There's copy and write and there's merge on read. And so we have these, this merge on read uses Avro based ways to write the data that we can then asynchron, asynchronously compact into columnar formats. We have record level indexing with Hootie point 11, where we, we just released also this multimodal index which is really exciting. Go read about our latest release of point 11, the new ways that we've extracted another 10 to 30 X gains on query performance, and even switched to using H file metadata file formats that we can get like 10 to hundred X performance gains on how you access the metadata, enable data skipping, these kind of things. Hootie also takes a, a pretty different stance when it comes to concurrency control. Both the other products are projects, I should say are working with optimistic concurrency control, which is a, you know, hope that things don't collide when they do retry this kind of mode. Whereas with Hootie, we have OCC and MVCC and you're able to get multiple riders and also have the table services around your data, like 
when you, when you have to compact the data, cluster the data, index the data, we can manage all these through a timeline server and make sure that there's no collisions at all for managing the data. So I've seen when customers do deep evaluations, they do deep technical studies, benchmark comparisons, these kind of things. They usually tend to find like, hey, Hootie and, and Delta come out kind of close when it comes to performance parity. But then when you look at like feature sets, Hootie's got a, a really exciting bunch of, of feature sets and also the roadmap that's there. Does that help on, on the question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I mean, I think we need to have like at least one more episode to chat more, to be honest. And maybe we should arrange to have like uh, both of you and Vinod at the same time. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be a fun combo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we should do that. So I give the microphone back to Eric. Eric, I keep from the conversation that there are times in life that being an optimist is not always good. At least when it comes to concurrency. Oh, yours. I love it. Okay, just one last question because we're close to the buzzer year, Kyle. But <clears throat> so you said that the lake house format is really for companies of all sizes, right? Yeah. Um, let's speak to a listener who you know, sort of maybe is living in warehouse only world, or maybe they are living in sort of like, we have sort of a whole separate, you know, data lake infrastructure, then a whole separate, you know, warehouse infrastructure. You sort of talked about those, you know, performing different functions. How do you begin to think about a world where you are working with a data lake house, right? Yeah. Like maybe that's in your future. And so what are the different sort of modes of thought, workflows, et cetera, that you need to be thinking about? Yeah, that's right. Good question. Let's start from the angle of, of someone that's at a lake or they have a mixed bowl with lake and, and warehouse. The lake house fits in really nicely to complement where warehouses are, where you can make a central place for ETL, BI, machine learning, these kind of things. And then when you need true, like, enterprise scale BI and lots of, lots of internal users and dashboards and a lot of concurrency and these kind of things, then you can push aggregate, aggregate data and more cleaned up data into data warehouses and, and be able to use it as more of like a serving kind of layer. That's, that's when you're starting from that angle. When you're starting from the, the angle that you described of, Hey, you're, you're a big data warehouse user. You don't have a like anywhere in the picture, how or where would a lake house come in? I would say, you know, look at where you're spending the most money in, in your warehouse and, and identify like, what are the workload patterns that, that are, are costing the, the most money, whether that's maybe some ETL process, some kind of cleans or, or business aggregates or things like that, or, and, and find those and then Run, run a run a POC on on the lake and see see how much it costs you, and and just see the the amount of savings that you're able to get there. For if people are looking on like how can they take everything that they built in the warehouse and come to a lake as well, I think DBT is actually a really interesting choice and and view there. Where if your logic is all written inside DBT, you can that your your 
like all your logic is pretty portable across these systems. So that's actually, if, if people are on the cusp and getting into their warehouse and they're like, Hey, I'm worried, you know, I might be thinking about a lake later, but I still need to build a warehouse, perhaps put, put a layer on top that, that makes you more agile and portable for the future. That's just a suggestion. Love it. Awesome. All right. Well, Brooks is telling us that we are at time. Kyle, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I learned so much and it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Costas. Appreciate it. As always, a super fascinating conversation. You know, I think one of my takeaways, Costas, is that I don't know if I've heard the opinion stated so clearly that the lake house architecture is for companies of all sizes. The underlying context in many of those conversations is enterprise use cases, high-scale use cases. And I mean, cost was certainly a subject that came up on the show, but it was really interesting. I think that's a, that really stuck out to me. You know, and so maybe we are seeing sort of the beginnings of a migration to a new architecture, or at least like the, you know, sort of the very early stages of that. And I don't know, maybe one house is the company that will, uh, that'll make that happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. I think I, I, I've said that like many, many, I mean, I'll do a few times like on our show or at least like in private conversations between the two of us that like one of like the way that we should be looking into what the future will look like in the data space, let's say, or the ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. The, <laughs> the sectors, like, check what the enterprises are doing. Like, things start from there and then they go down. Like, it's pretty much like the opposite of what was happening with SaaS, where you would go and, like, innovate in the medium-sized or small-sized companies and then go up market. Now, like, things are actually happening the, like the opposite direction here. I think one of the reasons like people do not use lake houses that much is because exactly like there's like you need to have a lot of expertise and infrastructure in terms of like human resources like to go and do that. Like you need to have like the data engineers, like specialized like systems engineers who can go and take the data lake and turn it into a lake house. And I think that's exactly where the opportunity lies for companies like one house, like even like Iceberg with Tabular, the company behind that, and Delta Lake with Databricks, right? How we can, I mean, the market can come up with products that will make it like much, much easier to, to build the systems. Because I think that at the end, what, what the lake house delivers is a platform that it's flexible enough to accommodate in the most optimal way, all the different workloads that the company might have. And like companies do not have just one workload anymore, even small command. So I think that's like what is happening there and it's still early, but I think we will, we will hear more and more about this new category, like next couple of months at least. I agree. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the data Stack show. Tell a friend about the show if you haven't already, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack 
the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.